0: As you may have picked up from the uh, front page of the bulletin, and perhaps even from the hymns today, today is Trinity Sunday in the life of the church, and uh, Trinity Sunday is the only Sunday in the year that the subject is a, uh, is a dogma, it's a doctrine. I'm not my favorite Sunday of the year, now I'm old enough to know that I can skip it if I don't want to talk about the Trinity Sunday. But I think uh, we need to have a tip of the hat, if you will, towards Trinity Sunday and say a couple of my things that are helpful for me to understand Trinity Sunday. One is when I learned in uh, Sunday school, water, ice, steam, all the same element, different forms of it. When I was in about the fifth grade, I thought, well, that was pretty good. I bought it, and that was my understanding of the Trinity. Here's another one. If that doesn't do you any good, here's another one. It's uh, the word person, uh, the word Person comes from the Latin persona, and personas initially were masks that um, art, the actors used. It was the same actor, but they would change their mask and then speak the different lines. The same actor using a, using a different voice and speaking from a different perspective. It's the same thing for all of us. You know, I can tell you this: that uh, my wife, uh, married to my wife, so she she knows me as husband primarily, and all that that entails. Our daughters know me as father and all that that entails with it. The people with whom I work know me as a colleague and all that that entails. Still the same person, three different interpretations, three different ways of people understanding the same person. So that is my other, all analogies fall apart, at the very, fall short at the very end, and so does that one, but it may be helpful in your understanding of the Trinity. But that's as far as I go today talking about the Trinity. Not going to do any more of it. (laughs) Last Sunday, we had a wonderful speaker here for the Adult Forum, and she was the Fox News correspondent on national security, I think. I forget her her proper title. And the title of her presentation to us was Terrorism. And I want to tell you, she was fabulous. She was a terrific speaker, very knowledgeable, wonderful, wonderful presentation. But at the very end of it, at the very end of it, uh, Wendy Fivison, who sings in our choir, and I were walking out of the church, and... And Wendy says to me, you know what we need at the end of a presentation like that? Uh, we need to sing a hymn. We need to sing a hymn to uplift us because it was such a scary thing. It was such a frightening presentation. It was all about fear and the fear that we have that encompasses all that we can describe as terrorism. And she said, maybe we should be singing a hymn at the end of this, uh, at the end of this presentation. And I thought to myself, yeah, it's too bad we didn't schedule a hymn, and maybe we should sing hymns as frequently as possible. I don't carry the choir around with me all the time. They help me sing along a good bit. But uh, most of the time, I don't have access to the choir to be able to sing those hymns. As St. Augustine said, "When the person who sing, sings prays twice, and I believe that. And so it's fortuitous that today we have a lot of hymns to help us along the way. But if hymns can help us along the way, then perhaps I thought to myself, well, maybe today, this Sunday, we can talk about that which gives us hope. I want to talk about the mature faith of the Christian community, the mature faith of the Christian community. Notice how in the first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul talks about, when I was a child, I saw things in a childish way, but now that I am adult, I've given up childish ways of understanding things. And perhaps it's important for us to consider what a Christian, a mature faith, we can have, I think we need a mature faith under the hammerings of history that we have now. Because you and I both know that fear is a diminishing emotion. Fear is a diminishing emotion and it makes us act in very strange and difficult ways. I'll give you a very brief example. I had knee surgery about uh, exactly two months ago and about the time that I had knee surgery, all the newspapers were having stories about opioids and opioid epidemics. So I'm reading the newspapers and thinking about all the problems with the opioids and so on and so forth. Lo and behold, I have my surgery. The doctor prescribes, um, what did he prescribe, Lou? Percocet. thank you, prescribed Percocet. <laughs> which is an opioid, as you know. And so I'm sitting there thinking about what I'm taking What I've read in the newspaper, and fear has complete grip of my heart, and I'm thinking to myself, if I take very many of these things, I'm going to get addicted to it. And when I get addicted to it, my next step is to go on heroin. And after I take the heroin, I'm going to overdose on heroin. And after I finish overdosing on heroin, my wife is going to kick me out of the house, and I'm going to find myself as a dead man in the middle of some gutter somewhere in Washington, D.C. So it's that fear that then the first day after surgery I take my Percocet, the second day after surgery, I take my Percocet. I'm feeling a little better after the second day of surgery. For the third day of surgery, Lou comes, and it's about nighttime, and she said, do you want to take a Percocet? And I said, no. I'm not going to get hooked on these opioids. I want to take two Advil for tonight. So Lou goes to her bedroom. I stayed downstairs in the bedroom where I inhabit, that I inhabited for two, for two months. And the next morning, Lou comes back down, and I say, ooh. Uh, I've made a terrible mistake, Lou. I've made a terrible mistake. And I tell you that. It's a very simple one, but it's about how fear can cloud our emotions. Clear, Fear can drive the way we think, and fear can drive us to do things that I don't think are very helpful. It is a diminishing emotion. My question for all of us about our faith is this. Is your faith strong enough to endure all the pain, sorrow, and anger, and still strong enough to enable us to reach to our neighbor in need? Is your faith deep enough to grasp the vision of a new day filled with hope and possibility? Is your faith broad enough to embrace the world and all of its brokenness and cause our hearts to ache with passion for peace and justice? Is your faith lofty enough to focus our eyes on heaven and move us to dream impossible dreams with which God's future is filled and upon which our future so sorely depends. I think a mature faith can meet all those needs. And what what I offer to you for your consideration today are three important things that I've discovered in my life that are important for a mature faith, and I consider my faith to be a mature faith. There are three things that are important. One of them is a life of devotion, a life of service and a life of study. Let me review all three of them. The first one is a life of devotion, a life of prayer. Here's my question to you. How frequently do you pray? How frequently do you stop to thank God, for instance? How frequently do you pause during the day to see if the Holy Spirit can enter your human spirit? How frequently do you pull out a prayer book, if you need that, to cast a prayer? How often do you pray? Prayer for me is first and foremost relationship. And as you and I both know, all relationships need to be nurtured over and over and over and over. A life of prayer is a life of devotion. It can be meditation. It can be solitary prayer. It can be communal prayer. In this sense, I am preaching to the choir today. I find that it's important to pause during the day in silence and try to pay attention to all that is going on around me and to try to let the Holy Spirit enter my heart so that it may touch my human spirit. Now, you know, some folks say, well, I really don't have time for that. Well, we have time for everything. How many times do you check your, your, uh, your iPad? Everybody has time to read the newspapers. I read three newspapers a day. Wouldn't miss it for a a day. All of us tune into the news. All of us do the things that we have to do. Do you have a habit of prayer? Do you make it a habit to pray? Do you pause during the day? Meditation, I think, is important. What I found about meditation is that... uh, usually what it does is confirm my own suspicions about God. And the value of prayer, broad prayer, communal prayer, like the one that we're having, is that it broadens our perspective of who God is. And as soon as we broaden our perspective of who God is, we learn more about ourselves because we are created in the image of God. So I offer to you that a mature faith requires a life of devotion Because prayer is first and foremost relationship, and it needs to be nurtured over and over and over. The second thing is a life of action, a life of service, perhaps. I think spirituality is all about what we do with our human freedom. William James was the one who said that uh, the difference between a good person and a bad person is the choices they make in life, and that's true for all of us. God has given us freedom, freedom of the will. That's what we love about our relationship with God. God doesn't tell us how we're going to act. God gives us complete and total freedom, and you have to choose how you're going to act. And I think mature spirituality is all about the choices that we make in our lives, conscious choices about what we're going to do with our lives. The inner spiritual life has to be maintained But like all the prophets, we need to keep our eyes open to all that is around us. A spiritual life is not about being more godly. It's about being more deeply human. And it's about what we do with our freedoms. Notice in our scripture today on 1 Corinthians, what I like about that is that when he talks about love, he's always talking about not words but about deeds. Read it again after the church service today. These are deed words. These are action words. Patient, kind, generous, selfless, gracious, humble, accepting, forgiving, bearing all, believing all, hoping all, enduring all, never-ending. Those are all deed words. Those are all action words. And the difference between a good and a bad person, of course is the choices we make in our lives. And the third one is about uh, a disciplined work of the mind grounded in Scripture, as far as I am concerned. A week ago, we had the confirmation service over at the cathedral, and the bishop preached a very good sermon. And she was given a charge to the confirmants that were gathered there. And one of the things that she charged the uh, confirmants with was, she said, to read scripture. She said, read scripture regularly and do it intelligently. I'm not sure what she meant by intelligently. I'd like to translate that to mean read scripture with a, a, the, the, the throttle of your imagination wide open. To read scripture asking yourself the question, why did they keep this story in here? There were multiple stories out there about Jesus. There were all sorts of stories about Jesus out there. Why did they keep this story Why did they think it was important? What does it illustrate for us? What does it, if we have imagination, what does it mean for us? One time the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was the Archbishop back in the late 1940s, was asked the question, what does the Bible say about uh, atomic energy? And he said, nothing. The Bible doesn't say anything about atomic energy. They don't mention it. But that's not the point. He said, the Bible is about a book of direction, not directions. The Bible is intended to be a signpost, not a hitching post. The Bible is to open up our minds to the possibility of all that we can become. You know, there are different ways of how you end up reading the Bible, and I think it needs to be asked the question is, how frequently do you read it? Do you make a habit of reading it besides Sunday morning? Do you ever take it on as a habit, as a way of being? I'll tell you what I think I know about Jesus, and I offer this for your consideration. Jesus never gives us easy answers, at least from my perspective. Jesus doesn't seem to make anything obvious to us. What I find Jesus doing is teasing us, nudging us, dropping small pieces of stories along the way, for us to pick up one at a time. And I've asked myself the question, why doesn't he give us any easy answers? And I think because he's a good teacher. And that's what good teachers do. Jesus never offers us a souffle of universal principles that will magically fill all of life's problems. What I found is that Jesus very seldom, very seldom gives us instant solutions. And in a world that is used to having everything done instantly, That is a difficult way to live. Every once in a while, I watch the shows on TV, the evangelical uh, preacher shows, and every once in a while, there's somebody who makes a confession about how uh, Jesus has saved their life, and it's something like this. I'm exaggerating. My life was a mess. I was on a seventh marriage. I'd maxed out my 17 credit cards. I was addicted to snicker bars. And then I found Jesus and everything was instantly okay. Now, I'm not ever uh, one to question the experience that somebody has, the religious experiences that they have, but I want to tell you, that doesn't work for me. It just doesn't work for me. What Jesus offers us is stories along the way, giving us direction, but certainly not directions. I think it is good teaching And I think the end result of that is better discipleship, where we follow Jesus in trust and where we are slowly transformed, converted bit by bit into something that the Bible calls the body of Christ. I offer these for your consideration, for a mature faith, As we live under the hammerings of history, I want to tell you two things that I learned and have been important in my life. When I came to this country in 1961, my first grade here was the seventh grade, and in the civics class, they made us memorize an inaugural address. The one that fell on my lap was FDR's first inaugural address, and I'll never forget those words. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The other part of it is what I've learned from the first epistle of John. And the first epistle of John says, perfect love casts out fear. I've learned that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. Crippling fear, diminishing fear. And the only thing that can drive it out is perfect love. A mature faith. That's what I think we need. And I offer for your consideration... During this time, as we live under the hammerings of history, a mature faith that will always, always remind us that it is only God's perfect love that will drive out fear. Amen.